Welcome to Talking Talk, the podcast for the media by us.com. Uh, I'm TJ. I'm joined today by Chris. Oh. And Brent. Oh. <laughs> um, today we're, we're, we're talking homework and issuing new homework with a topic. Homework was uh, 1972, I think? 73? 73. 73 sounds right. Uh, Al Pacino movie directed by the, the revered Sidney Lumet. Yep. Yes. And um, Chris assigned it, and uh, we'll let Chris kick things off. <clears throat> so, yeah. So, so the movie Serpico is about uh, uh, a young police academy graduate in New York who uh, goes to his first posting in, uh, I don't even remember, this, the, the borough. Is it the Bronx? I think it's the Bronx. Bronx. And then he moves to Manhattan? Correct. Yeah, so so he starts out in one of the Bronx precincts uh, and basically realizes that all police work done by plainclothes officers and uniformed officers is for the purpose of collecting money from mid-level criminals uh, running books or racketeering or laundering schemes and wants to either, A, get away with it so he can dedicate his life to real, honest police work, or B, get rid of it, uh, because he is very anti-corruption, is an, is, a, is an ethical cop from day one. <clears throat> so, therein lies the conflict in the movie. It is a world full of corrupt cops where Frank Serpico is the only honest cop. Um, it is a, a very... <clears throat> realistic movie in that there's 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 no flash there's no uh a pomp and circumstance around the cinematography it is about frank serpico in the years that he served on the police force from probably 65 I mean, to 72 from a uniform cop to well, a, i read this it's from 60 to 72 okay, okay. 60 to 72 and the, and the movie moves through years in a clip like, the way that you tell there's been a strong passage of time is he either has a conversation with somebody immediately following a scene showing a conversation with that person where things have evolved, or he's got more facial hair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, it, yeah. By the end, I was really impressed that Barry Gibb was able to uh, get all these, uh, you know... <laughs> Accolades for being Frank Serpico. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> you look like Barry Gibb. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, but at, at the outset, uh, I really like this movie. I signed it as homework because... you seen it before? I had seen it before. Okay. Um, this was one of my... I, I have a weird history of... Uh, my mom was a nurse. Um, so staying home from school was never a thing that happened often. So I remember days where I stayed home from school when I was sick. Uh, there were so few and far between when I was in middle school and high school. Um, I watched this movie on like USA or TNT mm-hmm. uh, or some network non HBO channel when I was younger, and it was something I was flipping through the channels on. And my mom said, "Have you have you really not seen this movie? You need to watch it." So that was the first time I watched it. So that means fuck, I'm old. Uh, yeah. Probably fourteen or fifteen years ago. Um, and so I remember really liking it, um, being the counterculture snob that I was at the time. Right. And watched it again. This is probably this is 
for sure, my only my second time seeing it, uh, really liked it again. You know, after like 15 months of doing this podcast, I've realized that uh, Chris and David's mom is pretty damn cool, and uh, she's good <laughs> taste in movies. She she is pretty damn cool. She's yeah. she, she's. Got, I, I, I've met her. I I know yeah. her, but so it's not like this person from afar. But she's I didn't. Good, I've never talked movies with her. She has good taste. She's got really great taste in movies as long as you stray away from certain subjects. She's. <laughs> She's a little biased against... Uh, yeah. see, see the Mother's Day episode from last year? Uh, that's yeah. right. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's got her predilections. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm curious to know what you guys think about this movie. Brent, I know you'd seen it before, and TJ, this is your first watch, but you're no stranger to a Sydney Lament movie. Um, and I, and I want to know what you guys think about Serpico. So, on a rewatch, it's, it's a, it is a, an interesting movie to rewatch because it is not... You know, when, when it's a true story kind of movie, I feel like the first watch is, it's almost unbeatable for the first watch. Like, you are, when you're learning about the story that yeah. happened. And so, when you already know that, it, it certainly loses a little bit of its luster. Like, it's it's not a, those aren't the kind of movies that you just want to rewatch over and over again, generally. Um, but that did allow me to, I, it really noticed Pacino's performance, which I thought was top-notch. I thought it was just fantastic. And I thought there were a couple of things I noticed that I didn't notice the first time. Um, one being his performance. Another being, uh, I mean, I always knew his performance was good. Right, right. But, but he was so in that, he was so, like, it felt like a very lived-in character. Like, he was so in that character that he, I just totally bought everything he did on screen as Frank Serpico. And the other thing that I noticed was like there was a there was a gritty realism to the movie that really stuck out to me. Like uh there's that scene when it's the the guy who uh, it's like the mob boss who or the 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 maybe the connected guy who's the guy who's protected by everybody. Who's sort of like he's just like hanging out in the police for Yeah, the sleazy book. Yeah. yeah, okay. That yeah. he arrests? Yes, yes. he arrested and he comes back in and a really physical scene, yeah. That physical, the the physicality of that scene when he throws him up against the the the, the lockup and he he rips his pants. Yeah. And that like aggressiveness, and you can tell from the like there was no like careful choreography with the way they filmed that. That was real. That was a a like Pacino as Serpico was so aggressive in that scene. That really stuck out to me as a like. A jarring scene with how um, how real it felt. Yeah, in particular, I remember watching it and picking up that like, so he's he's like he has this moment where he's throwing the guy up against the wall, up against the cage, and he's like having basically a temper tantrum. Yes, because he has just booked this person in with the front desk, has gone to go turn in evidence about search the car. And by the time he comes back, this guy is laughing it up with the other plainclothes detect, plainclothes cops, and so he's just like losing his fucking mind because he's been told that this precinct in particular is squeaky clean, clean mm-hmm. as a hound's tooth, and <clears throat> he does this thing with uh, one of his like neighbors' chairs where he slams it on the ground and just breaks one of the legs of the chairs, and it looks like there was a production note <laughs> because. He breaks the, the chair leg, and I don't think that was intentional. <laughs> that like the set starts collapsing mm-hmm. because of like how just like 
vigorous he's acting. Right. And he goes to put the chair back, and it just, like, tilts over. And then you see, as extra work, someone try and, like, right the chair, and it, like, keeps tipping over. And so they just drag it off camera. Like, he is full-on fucking raging in this scene, and it sells the character really well there. I, I think the reason those scenes work when he, like, hits the tipping point um, work because... He's so subdued for most of the movie. Yeah. And, like, that, that shot where he's arresting the guy who's, like, protected by the detectives, and he's... Yeah. It's that long, full shot, and he's slowly realizing that everybody's, like, kind of nervous that he's doing this. Yeah. And he's getting nervous that he knows that they know, and uh, it, it's the old, like, cop bribe problem, right? Like, yeah. you take the money, you're a bad cop. You don't take the money, all the cops hate you, and they're nervous about you now. Right. Um... Which isn't like anything that was new even at the time, but uh, that shot in particular was the one part of the movie that stood out to me. Is like, oh, this is brilliant. Mm. It was long. It was continuous. It was, it was really good. And then coming from somebody who's not a big Al Pacino fan, also admittedly have not seen Godfather Two, which uh, you know is up there with this, I think, and like I guess Sin of a Woman. Oh, I've seen that, but for like great Pacino roles, was not a big fan. Uh, He's incredible in this. Just amazing. Yes. Um, I mean, some of the action was cheesy. I was telling Chris earlier, but it's cheesy like any movie from the 70s was. You know? Yeah. Like, you could tell when he's chasing the rapist in the first half hour or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. that guy's jogging. Right. And Pacino's in full sprint. Um, but I love the movie. And I love that it's not just a cop who wants to, like, go catch the bad guy. Like, he's he's... <laughs> The, the mustache and the hair actually played, like, kind of a deep part for me. Yeah. It, 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 while it helped him be undercover in plain clothes, it also, like, let him go to parties and talk about, like, culture with people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he wanted to do that. You could tell he wanted to do that. Like, yeah. he wanted to be a good guy. He wanted to help the people and, like, buy the dog or whatever, you know? Yeah, like, he, he tells... Watch my, watch my car and my stuff. And, like, those people played shady characters and you, like, never saw them again. Like, he just, like, trusted everybody. He was, like, not only not a bad cop, but, like, a good guy. Yeah, it's, he has that interaction with the uh, the desk chief um, in the third precinct he goes to. And it's going to be muddy which one we're talking about because he ships between, like, seven, I think, in total, different precincts. So second is the one where the guy's, like, cut your hair. Yeah, and then he goes to the, the chief, and the chief's, like, do whatever you want. Right, and yeah. that's, 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 like... They they paint in why it's important to the plot is you know he there's the 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 uniformed officer who tells him you know this is how things go here we're really strict and it's like okay well this might be a good sign that they're like a rules oriented department and he's like cut your hair shave that thing off your lip and then he talks to the chief and he's like you know what I hear your arguments about being more relatable I hear your arguments about how the police are are out of touch you know you just went to this party and they they you know People freaked out when they found out that you were a police officer. And he's like, keep it. But then it's just more of the same. It's more just police corruption. It's more, you're either on the take or you're not. And if you're not, then you're not working there. I feel like uh, there's a parallel, like it, there's some sort of a, uh, um, a continuum of sorts, like where it's like it's the mustache and, and facial hair continuum, where the more he has, the less he is liked by the police. And the more he is sort of can can connect with just regular folks. Yeah. And you see that his hair just he gets I mean, he refers to himself as a hippie at times. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I feel like that there's that it's a very conscious thing, and I, I think that's uh, Lumet in his movies makes very conscious imagery decisions, um, and I think that's an example in Serpico, which in this case I think it works. It's subtle enough to work, um, and uh, I thought that was interesting how he just get the more ragged he looks, the the is it represents how deeper how 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 uh, disconnected he is from the rest of the police yeah, force. Yeah, that it also was a kind of a, it played into his relationship with Laurie a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that, and this seems like classic, like, boxer wife in movies, you know what I mean? Like, she couldn't take that he was kind of being slowly driven insane by the work problems. I'm sorry, I'm yeah. bad with her name. Is she the first or the second? First. First, okay, yes. Okay. Barbara Eva Young. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel about her performance? By the way, I was I was surprised. Kinda. I I thought that, that that both women who play an important role in this movie were both really good. They 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 each had a a very dramatic scene with uh, Pacino. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the 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 first woman in the tub, which is like it it's it's so bizarre the conversation, but like it's not for him. Because he understands the real possibility there. They're sitting in the bathtub, and she says, "I'm moving. I'm moving to Texas." Right. And he's like, "What? Okay." She's like, "Yeah, I'm moving to Texas. I'm going to marry Roy. If you don't marry in the next two months, if you don't marry me in the next two months." And for most people, like you would hear that and you'd go like, "All right, you're being ridiculous." Yeah. But for him, like he almost, I almost felt like that. Serpico was like, "That's a good way out." You know, I'm young and I'm 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 just like encountering these problems. Like I'm not about to ask someone to marry me right now when I'm this big of a target. Okay, and, swap, by the way. Oh, uh, so Laurie is. You're the talking second about the second one. one. I thought well, no, I was talking about the first one. I've mentioned the name and the actress of the second one. Ah, uh, gotcha. But then the 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 second woman, she's got her two scenes. The one. Uh, in the apartment when she's sitting down next to the, the chess table, mm-hmm. um, where she's telling him, she gives him the line, you're tearing me apart! Yeah. Uh, and then, in the, again, in the <laughs> diner, <laughs> where she goes, I figured we'd be here because you can't scream. <laughs> and he does the, I can scream anywhere! I'm Al Pacino! <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing I noticed was uh, the... The music of the movie, like it, it there, it, it has a score which I think is is pretty good, um, and then also, but there's one scene. It's when they are trying to kind of get the drop on this one uh, place where they're uh, like a gambling house. Where they throw the trash can through the window. Yeah, yeah. And they're it's when they're they're jumping on the roof from rooftop to rooftop. Yeah, and. Uh, there's no score in that scene. There's just uh, there's just like music, and it's it's done really well. And it struck me as I really enjoyed the use of music in that scene. It's just sort of background music, hmm. but it was uh, the change in that from score to that because a lot of the movie had score, and then um, that scene in particular didn't, and I thought it worked really really well, and I really like that. Yeah, there there were there were a couple of scenes where they had in scene music. Mm-hmm. I think you know, very on the nose is the one where he's, I guess you could call it relaxing in his garden, and he meets Laura for the first time. I like that scene where they meet. Yeah, where it's like it's there. There's a fun kind of uh, 
absence of movie magic where uh, he's out there listening to, he's, he is a first generation American. Um, his parents have immigrated from uh, Italy and he's playing, you know, a classic Italian singer and she she guesses who it is, uh, like 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 Bergenet or whatever. I forget the name. And he goes, "No, it's De Stefano." And she goes, "What?" Like she didn't hear him. <laughs> like, and then he says, "It's it's De Stefano." And she goes, "I thought it was De Bergeron." And he goes, "No, it's De Stefano." It's like that, like that, like actual conversation. Yeah. That happens in real life where you ask someone to repeat things you didn't understand them yeah. or you didn't hear them. That like. You know, isn't efficient dialogue, but that's not. This is not for efficiency. No, it's for like realism. Yeah, mm-hmm. to an extent. I have a weird question. As a first-time watcher, I thought back after the movie. I was like reading through the notes I made, and wondered if it happens probably around like the thirty to forty-minute mark, where he's arresting that guy in between the dumpsters, and the cops come up and they almost shoot him. Yes. Yeah. Do y'all think that was, like, foreshadowing at all? And, like... Because that was before you really knew, like, the, how deep the corruption was. Like, you thought they were just kind of assholes. Like, is that, like, a... Or, like, is there a chance that they were, like... They don't give a fuck because it's Serpico already? I like... I don't I, think it that way. I don't think it's that way. I was just curious how y'all felt about that. Because it... It seemed a little out of place, kind of. Yeah, it did. The only thing really that I could, if I'm like working to fit that into the context of the movie, the only thing I could maybe come up with is that maybe that's just another moment which pushes, which like creates a divide between him and the pol- and the other police. So maybe it's not intentional in any way, but maybe it, it gives just, them the collar though, even, which is like, and, and I think that's important because I, I think it serves a couple purposes. Uh, I think it, you know, all along, Serpico is saying that he's not doing this for career advancement. Mm -hmm. But then he sees these knucklehead cops firing shots off without warnings. And I think that that's instructive in his career moves. That that getting that gold shield, becoming a detective, or being... That's his job too, right? That's that's the one where they tell him to shave, and then the guy says, you can be in plain clothes. So, like, this this is his first, like, bust as a plainclothes cop uh, where he's in the subway station and sees someone breaking into a law office. And so he sees these knucklehead cops who are being reckless. And I think, I think that, that motivates him to, to like, like that's his standard for like, I don't want to go back to uniform, which he repeats a couple times. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be back in uniform. But it also serves a purpose, I think, in showing him that like, they're not the problem. They're idiots. They're not willfully bad cops. Like, because he asks for the caller. He says, you know, I fired my gun. Like, I'm going to go back with all this paperwork. I need a caller to justify it. Like, he's not intentionally rule-breaking, but he's fired shots, and he doesn't want to break the rules to get around it. He's not saying, like, Serpico, like, like put some prints on this guy. He's saying... Help me make this easier because this was a mistake. And I think that's that's also good because, you know, the the main conflict for Serpico is never the uniformed cops. He certainly has his like side eye views from them, but it's the plainclothes cops who can get away with it because they're not easily identifiable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that and that scene was like Lumetta side, um, story aside, 
brilliant acting in that scene by Pacino, I thought. Like, him cowering in fear in the corner. Yeah. Like, freaking out that they may come around the corner and blow him away. Yeah. Shuffling in like a criminal. Like, didn't know. He had to join the criminal. He had to, be, yeah. he had to act just like the criminal. He didn't have yeah. his gun drawn on the dude. He didn't right. have, like, right. his arm against him. He was also just hiding from the plane clip, from, right. the, from the uniform cops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, was, that, was, that was really smart either acting or, or direction or probably whatever both. happened. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it was a, not to get away from this movie, but, like, uh, interesting time for Pacino, where I'm sure he was getting like script after script after script. Yeah, after I mean script. this was a year after Godfather. Yeah, he had done Dog Day too, right? No, that's Dog Day seventy five. Seventy five. Okay, so this is after this. But it's still in like the young Pacino heyday. Yeah, and then there's like a weird like disappearance of Pacino until like the late eighties. I feel like like, and then Pacino yeah. comes back, and then it's just old Pacino. Yeah, suddenly. <laughs> Like I can't picture Al Pacino between like Jesus Dog Dog Day and uh, it's like he's either a baby or he's like twenty seven. All right, there's not like like yeah. there's no teenage Jesus, right? That's because like all teenagers, no one would like teenage Jesus. So they, they, <laughs> he's an asshole. They thought that would be unhelpful for the for the message. Um, no, but yeah, it's like I can't picture Pacino between like. Between Dog Day and Sin of a Woman. Now, maybe it's because I have not seen a great deal of his filmography. But in my mind, there's just 70s young Pacino, which is all, like... Serpico's even a little out of place because he... Of all the extra, like, facial hair and, and whatnot that he yeah. has. But, like, there's this, like, 70s young Pacino, and then there's everything just Sin of a Woman on. And that's pretty much it for me whenever I think of his career. Um... It's funny because he's in. Uh, I guess Dick Tracy is ninety, but there's so much Scarface. There's so much. Yeah, I hate Scarface, but. Yeah. I mean, he's not really in a lot. He's in between eighty and ninety. He's in seven, films. six movies. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, he just took a break. Is what like Mad Dog and Glory somewhere in there? It's Cruising, Author, Author, Scarface, Revolution, Sea of Love, The Local Stigmatic, and Dick Tracy. Uh, Logos Stigmatic and Dick Tracer both in 1990 along with Godfather Part 3. He was busy in 90. Mm. <clears throat> and then he does, and then his next big film is uh, Glen Gary Glen Ross. Cinema and Carly Way. He has a heat. Yep, he, he does have that early 90s. Donnie Don, Brasco. Donnie Brasco. Oh, my bad. That's Robert De Niro in Mad Dog and Glory and that's a 90s movie. I was hoping I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I've never seen it. I well, so, I didn't know. Yeah, but this is basically his like second big role. Yes. Um, he, you know, he had done The Godfather in '72, so he was booked to do Serpico before The Godfather came out. Basically, interesting. He was he was filming it before that, um, and I think it's funny you bring up the, the facial hair because that was like I've gotten that comment from my parents. That was an eponymous look. Is if you had long hair and a beard, you had the Serpico look. Oh, like, interesting. Like that was that was that was an iconic early movie for. You know the the boomers generation. Hmm. Um, I saw that uh, Frank Serpico uh, got placed number forty on the AFI's hundred hero hundred heroes and villains. So that's fortieth out of I think fifty heroes in movie history. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's uh, appropriate, or like you think he's overrated on that list, or do you think he's underrated on that list? I think it's 
it's a, it's appropriate. I'd be curious to know where juror number nine is. He's got to be on that list. Yeah, I'll, I I would also want to know. He's got a name. He's one of the two jurors that has names. It's it's hard to me because juror number eight. Okay. Yeah, played by Henry Fonda is number twenty eight. Okay. He should list. be higher than Serpico. Yeah, because because for me the my biggest problem with the character. I'm sorry. I just saw that Serpico is one spot behind Lassie. So that's (laughs) that's fucking disappointing. That's fair. (laughs) I mean, it's... You know, if if, if he is a hero, his journey and his flaw, I think, are, are, are evident that it's so hard. He's a, he's, he's a Ned Stark. His compass is so... Yes, that's a great... Moral North. Yeah. That... When, I mean, the movie is more or less bookended by him getting shot in the face. And it's like, yeah. That ain't please Ned Stark because he's, he's moral in a world of, world of immoral people. Yeah. He's, he... I mean, and also, like, this is based off a real dude. This, this is based off not only a real dude, but somebody who uh, wrote a biography... That came out the year before. That was co-authored, not co-authored, but co-signed by the real Frank Serpico. Yeah, and and did a lot to like halt corruption in New York City cops. I mean, you think about this, and the the movie concludes with him leaving the force in 1972. This movie came out in 1973. They cranked this out real quickly. Yeah, I mean his his involvement with the NYPD is big story then. Yeah, it's basically what gave rise to the idea of there being an internal affairs department in every police, like, large police unit right. in the country. It just, that doesn't happen that fast anymore. I can't think of a movie that's been that fast on... I mean, the one that comes to my mind immediately is Patriot Day, the new one from... Yeah. Is like... But, but that's that, still, like... That the next that's, year? That's, like, that's a couple like years, though. Two years. Three yeah. years. And I was thinking about the, Snow- the Snowden movies, and they were a couple years at but least. That's still Titanic. an ongoing story. What? Titanic? Yeah. <laughs> James yeah, Cameron I mean, Titanic started... is only like 64, 63 years. James Cameron wanted to, uh, like to film that movie, but they didn't have the technology at the time. They didn't have the technology. I was yeah, waiting for it to catch up. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> well, yeah I mean, that's... I, I, think he's, I think he's a great hero, but I think he is flawed in his pure heroism. And I, I do think the greatest heroes are. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's, there's, there's something to say about Atticus Finch, like, the perfect human. But who's number one on that list? Yeah. Yeah. But there's also, like, I don't know. You kind of like the flawed heroes. Well, you connect to them more. Nobody yeah. connects to Superman. Right. Right. Because he's, he's an ideal none of us can ever meet. But we all, we connect more to the superheroes that are flawed. Because they're more like us. And who's who's like number two on that list? I want to find one. Uh, Indiana Jones, definitely flawed. I mean, but he's, you know, he's the roguish right. type. James Bond, nah, uh, unrelatable. Rick Blaine is number four. He's flawed, but he beats it. Um, That's yeah, interesting. I'm trying to think of someone who is who is stubborn with their righteousness. And I, right. I, I looked at number 11 on this list, which is Jeff Smith from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That's a good one. And He's, he's very, kind of in the Serpico way. And yeah. he is, that, he is stubborn. He doesn't care about the system because he is he just can't break his own moral fabric. Yeah. Um, he just happens to win because everybody feels kind of bad for him. Right. Where, yeah. 
Right. I mean, that's... That's the same, the same thing, though. It's not right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it also takes Serpico getting shot in the face. Right. And his other police officers stepping over his bleeding body. And, like, talking shit about him in the car the whole way, like... That's, like, first scene. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so the real story, it doesn't show it in the movie, but, but, but the real story of what happened to Frank Serpico happened very similarly, where he, he lodged himself in a door... Um, in a place where he and three other plainclothes cops were investigating, was shot in the face in the same place. It's if if you haven't seen the movie and don't want to watch it but want to listen to us talk for some reason, it's like right below the orbital bone, but above like his 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 top like his his upper gums. Yeah. Um, but in real life, they stepped over him. Nobody called it in. It was an old man who lived in the apartment complex who heard the shot, who stayed with him, and called just a regular ambulance. He was driven by a regular ambulance who didn't know he was a cop because the bullet had lodged itself in his jaw, so he couldn't speak. So, like, he was taken to the hospital as a normal guy, not as Frank Serpico or not as a cop. Mm -hmm. So, like, it took that for, like, we're letting people shoot a cop who's trying to do good work for any change to happen. Right. For his heroic act to be, like, recognized. And it's not even that. That's, that, that's not even, like, a symptom of, a, of his heroism. It's, like, it is in the sense that, like, he got shot and was left bleeding out because he didn't do what they wanted, but, or didn't do, the, the cops around him didn't do what was right, but, you know, his, the, the point, the point of him going in there was he was just doing his job. Right. Not in a way that was spectacularly heroic. Yeah, he's not like the best cop. No. No. He's just like cop who will sketch the bad guy. I mean, that's... Yeah, he gets assigned to narcotics, and all of a sudden, he's a narco cop. Right. And he goes up on the rooftop, comes down, finds out the, the, the apartment that they're dealing the drugs out of. The other three cops are fine with arresting people who bought the drugs, but... He wants to bust who's dealing, mm-hmm. and so he runs out and tells them that he saw where they are. Like, this is not an opportunity that was planned. It's one that presented itself to the shitty, corrupt cops who were, you know, owing him a favor from the reports they got from the Bronx and from Brooklyn. Yeah. This seems like we're venturing onto the one of the main things I want to talk about when we venture into the main topic of Sidney Lament movies is... The theme of, uh, like, heroes who kind of don't know they're heroes, and just kind of want to like like present like respect for humanity, sort of, and like trying to tie the movies I saw. Chris said earlier, I not my first introduction to the Met, but it was. I had only seen one Lumet movie, and it was one of my favorite movies, Twelve Angry Men, which I think fits in my proposed theme well. Mm-hmm. Um, that character played by Henry Fonda, juror number eighty, we said, he um, definitely never like comes out and says that the guy's innocent, the kid's innocent. He's just like, shouldn't we like talk about it more? Yeah, isn't this our duty? Like, isn't that why we're here? Before we fully launch into Lumet, I just wanted to bring up to uh, Serpico was nominated for two Oscars. It lost both. Um, Gina, right? Chino was nominated. Also, best supporting or uh, best adapted screenplay. Uh, Surfco was nominated and lost to The Exorcist for best adapted screenplay, which uh, hard fine. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, it, that's interesting in today's you know. Uh, although 
Get Out one this year, right? Best original, original yeah. screenplay. So yeah. that's cool. You know that that we there aren't many horror winning screenplays. Who did uh, Pacino lose out to? So Pacino, this has to be one of the most stacked Oscar races in history. I don't know about the the particular performances in the individual movies, but the five men nominated for Best Actor were Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, Robert Redford, and they all lost to Jack Lemmon. The Department? No, Save the Tiger was the name of the movie. One of the other movies. Uh, Marlon Brando in Last Tango in Paris. Jack Nicholson in The Last Detail, which I, yeah, I, I'm not familiar that. with. Oh, nice. Uh, Al Pacino, and then Robert Redford in The Sting, which was oh, the best picture great. that year. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know that the Oscars have ever found five more talented actors to lump into a single category right. together. That is insane. They could all be Timothy Chalamet's great-grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> all of them? <laughs> Well, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm surprised that uh, I'm surprised that, that wasn't nominated for more. I don't know necessarily what I would pick, but I'm a little surprised that it only got two nominations. There, there are two Best Picture nominees that I've never heard of, and they are the movies Cries and Whispers and A Touch of Class. So, you know, I don't want to throw shade on those movies and just say that Serpica is better, but I, I don't know. It's it's a little surprising, but. Uh, Anyway, that's all. That's a award award talk for. Uh, I just wanted to mention that since yeah. we yeah since we watched an award, an Academy Award nominated movie. It's also to to kind of transition in. Uh, Sidney Lumet has been nominated for a number of Best Director uh, Oscars and didn't win during his lifetime. He was given an honorary Oscar I think in two thousand six uh, for his work. Um, he lost. Uh, I think he was nominated a total of four times. This is all from the top of my head, so it could be... I have the fucking Wikipedia page in front of me. I could just look at, like, read it, but... Yeah, sorry, uh, too. It was a... Yeah, he, oh, sorry. 14 of his films were nominated. That's and it. then uh, he was he was specifically nominated for, uh, uh, for four. And I'm sure a movie like Network got a ton... Like, Network got ten nominations, I think, and it won four, but he didn't yeah. win. So I'm sure he was nominated, though. Right. For, for Network. Probably for 12 Angry Men, too, I'm guessing. Um, but anyway, uh, is that the topic you we wanted to segue into? Yeah, I want to talk about, I want to talk about Lumet. He's, he's a director that who has um, who is uh, someone who you can, you can run the career of and, and hit a lot of highs for greatest movies of all time. Yeah. Um, he uh, passed away in 2011. Uh, but his his legacy, uh, after reading a lot of comments about him, is uh, going to be everlasting. Uh, known as an actor's director, I think we see that a lot in Serpico, um, Twelve Angry Men, he Dog can, Day Afternoon, for sure. He can get the performances. That's, yeah. That was definitely his I mean, I know, strength. Uh, Michael Shannon, blindly, was offered the role in um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and accepted only due to Sidney Lumet's connection. Yeah, as director. I think I think he said that uh, that 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 you wouldn't turn down a, a script from Sidney Lumet. Like if if it came across your desk, he he'd kick himself for not. Um, but yeah, so you bring up before the devil knows you're dead. Um, that was his last movie in 2007. Um, I think fairly critically acclaimed. Uh, yes, it's. 
Ethan Hawke, I believe, Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm-hmm. Michael Shannon. And I forget the female lead in it. Marissa Tomei? Marissa Mar- Mar- Tomei. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she's the lead. She's definitely in that movie. She's in the movie, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, that's a movie. It's one of his... So, you know, Sidney Lumet made a lot of movies. And directed The Wiz. Yeah. I've never seen The Wiz. Um, it's crazy. He's made a lot of movies. I've seen a handful. I think I've seen a lot of his more well-known movies. Um I actually did not realize until just now that he made before the devil knows you're dead. I just never, never made that connection. Um, that's a that's a really good crime movie. Yeah, it's I've never a seen it. it's a it's about two brothers who decide to stage a. Have you seen it? Yeah, they stage a robbery of their parents' business. Yep. To try to collect insurance money, but the robbery goes poorly, and their parents get killed. Right. Yes. I believe their parents get killed, or at least, <clears throat> yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I might be missing a few details. But it's a, I don't know. It's a very. It's also hard to follow. It's not. It's not a linear story, which is kind of bizarre for Lumet. Mm-hmm. He kind of plays things in a natural timeline, natural right. setting, natural environment. Um, but yeah. Uh, um, to run through the real quick, sure. Just for people who have no idea, uh, his directorial debut was Twelve Angry Men, which is ridiculous. It's pretty good. Yeah, that was that was his first movie that he directed. He directed a lot of TV before that, and is is known as one of the first directors to go from TV to film, who like nice. made made it like made TV directors bankable as able to direct films. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fugitive Con, which is a weird Marlon Brando movie that came out early, and I Brent watched it. So I actually it later. I watched that this week, um, and we'll talk about that if we if we wanted to hit on. I was the just gonna movies. I was gonna run through like the highlights sure. of his career. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, made seven movies in the sixties. Nothing that jumps out at you really. Child's Play, something big. Serpico, in the early seventies. Uh, the Albert Finney Murder on the Orient Express was directed by Sidney Lumet. Followed that up with Dog Afternoon, Network, The Wiz, The Verdict in the early 80s. Um, had a weird run of like, I don't know, I hate to say this, but like standard crime movies in the 90s. Yeah. Um, the Stranger Among Us is probably, starring Melanie Griffith is the one that was probably the most well-received then. Um, a, a really weird made-for-HBO movie I'll talk about a little later called Strip Search, which is just very bizarre. Uh, Simon Guilty, which actually got pretty good reviews and yeah. got Vin Diesel a good bit of praise, yeah, um, was his second to last movie before directing his final film, which is before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Yeah, um, but yeah, I was kind of hoping we'd kind of run through these, not to hijack this from Christy much. No, no, no. For the just... ones we've seen, uh, Brent saw his what fourth movie? Yeah, fourth yes. movie. Um, the Fugitive Con. I mean, we can talk about Twitter and Men first. I don't know if anybody hasn't seen it. You can go see it immediately. It's very short and amazing. It's and been uh, it's been a long time since I've seen Twelve Angry Men, and it has not lost a bit of the like the that feeling of seeing it, like yeah. that 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 inspiration. Still, I just you just mentioned that movie to me, and I feel inspired to do the right thing. Fonda yeah. is in that role. Like you get these like Arlie Cobb, not Arlie, that's Arlie Army, L. Lee Jacob, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, Ed Begley, Ed Begley Jr.'s father, yeah, plays the villain, I guess. Um, but 
It is. Uh, it's got E.G. Marshall too. Ninety-eight percent mm-hmm. in the courtroom or in the jury room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was about a deadlock jury and the murder of a white woman by a black man. No, his dad. Oh, his dad. Sorry. Um, and then I think Hispanic. I want to say. Hmm. Yes. Is it Hispanic? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, it plays with, with racism, like empathy toward the justice system by some people. Like, yeah, he's guilty. Let's get the hell out of here kind of attitude. Uh, and to hear a story, I mean, not only do they turn the jury around, um, I think you, you find out at the end. Actually, when I rewatched it, I didn't watch the last 10 minutes, but I think you find out the guy wasn't guilty. They pretty much tell you the kid didn't do it. Yeah. Um, so, but well, it, is, it is a wildly procedural journey through, like, it is not, like, you don't watch this or Serpico for, like, an exciting movie. It is, it is only exciting if you can understand and appreciate the drama of, like, the stakes involved of essentially sentencing a man to death. At the time. At the time. Mm-hmm. It was definitely going to be the death penalty, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is a play originally, I believe. Yeah. In, in fact, I actually, I remember using that when, uh, last year when we were talking about our, our Oscar nominees from 2016. And I, I remember using 12 Angry Men as my example of, of filming a play but doing it well. Because I was I was disliking Fences and the way that Fences felt restrained by it just felt like a play that had been filmed and it didn't work for me and I thought Twelve Angry Men also you can definitely see how it's a play but it totally works for me yeah and there's just something about it that just that works and I admit it's it's incredible that that it's a directorial debut not because he was able to do it that well I think we see a lot of directors who can make great movies with their debut. But with the fact that the cast he put together on a debut, you just don't see that. No. You don't see people able to pull in. Henry Fonda, a huge star at yeah. the time. And then, like, I'm not sure exactly as to how successful each of these guys were at, in 1956 or 57, whenever they record, whenever they made the movie. But, like, E.G. Marshall had a great career. Lee J. Cobb. Jack Klugman is in this movie. Jack Warden is in the movie. These are people who had a lot of success in Hollywood over the years. And so he got a great ensemble cast. Probably one of the greatest... Uh, 12 Angry Men should be a nominee if you ever have like, an award for, like, greatest cast for a... The last guy was the owner and the replacement. Driving the golf cart around. <laughs> nice. a Baltimore Orioles fan. <laughs> nice. In 12 Angry Men. Um, it was almost no work this week, by the way. You really was. Was. Yeah. <laughs> Love that movie. So good. Taco fan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 12 Angry Men is, is, is you know, it's a, it's a great movie. I feel like everybody who watches it loves it and, and recognizes that it's great, but it's also a movie you forget about when you're just in casual conversation talking about, like, the greatest movies of all time, the greatest Yeah, because there's nothing really to write home about. Right. But to tie this back to what we're talking about, you get this great, like, you know... People are just so, like, impates toward humanity. Like, they just don't yeah. give a fuck about anything they want to go. I mean, and then from the obvious guy of, like, everybody knows guys like him lie. Right. Like, they're all liars. Yeah. To the guy who's just like, I want to go to the ball game. Right, so it, it becomes, it's almost... They're both bad, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah, and, and it reminds me of Serpico in that it is about doing the right thing over the easy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think there's a theme there that transfers, you know, 15, 20 years later to Serpico. So I think the next movie that one of us has seen, though, is Brent's lone Sidney Lovett movie this week. Does the theme translate to that at all? There are definitely elements that translate from the fugitive kind. What are they? So there's one thing that, that's... I'll link the fugitive kind to Serpico in one fundamental way, and that is there is a uh, distrust of, or maybe not distrust, but uh, cops in those in both movies that disappoint you. Hmm. Um, so, do you know anything about Chris? Do you know anything about the the fugitive kind? No. Okay. I told TJ earlier in the week about this movie. It's a it's God. It's it's it is painful to even try to describe. But you did a good job with me. Okay. Go. So Tennessee Williams wrote this play, uh, and it was under a different name then. It had the name Orpheus in it. But it is a it is a retelling of Orpheus from Greek mythology, set in like a Southern Gothic place, like Tennessee Williams would set something. Right. Uh, it is about this character. Of uh, played by Marlon Brando, who is uh, basically a southern version of Orpheus. So he is a he's a musician, and he comes in. He's kind of a drifter. He comes into this town, and everyone in the town is either sexually repressed, or at least all the women in the town are either so sexually repressed that they are kind of just almost sexually deactivated, okay. or or they are so. The women in the town who are who who kind of embrace their sexuality are ostracized by everyone and treated as nymphomaniacs. And when he comes to town, he through various relationships uh, and just interactions, it, there's kind of a weird like awakening, like a sexual awakening. And it's mostly just from Marlon Brando just standing around looking, I guess, hot. Like he's just <laughs> like looking good. Looking like Marlon Brando. Looking like Marlon Brando in yeah. 1960. Right. And uh, anyway, it's a really bizarre film. Uh, there are some really good performances in it. it the, the movie feels a little, well, not a little, way too long. Um, and also, Lumet's, uh, his symbolism gets so on the nose at the end of the movie. And I'm just going to spoil it for you because you've had... 58 years to watch this movie. No. Uh, I've had 33. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, in the end, there is a, an attack, basically, on Marlon Brando's character and another woman, where they, the, the men of the town, the men who are kind of threatened by Marlon Brando's character, light this building on fire, and they, they attack the woman, and then they, uh, ultimately wind up the men of the town group together to turn on a fire hose, like a, a big fire hose, spray Marlon Brando down, and they, which pushes him back into the fire where he is consumed by the flames. So they ejaculate him to death? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's <laughs> another a, take. That is a, <laughs> definitely a take. I, see, I saw it as, like, he was so, like, he was too hot for their town. Okay. That there are actual physical fucking fire, like flames behind him in this scene where just men having to like hose him down because he is too hot for their women. And 
he is ultimately consumed by his fiery passion or whatever, and it is so on the nose, and it is so obvious with the symbolism that it just didn't really work for me. Okay. I was going to get but there get is, to that point. But there is a... I did want to link it back to Serpico in that there is a, uh, a sheriff in the town who is definitely a dirty cop in the movie. He is a, he is a bad cop. And mm. so I think that's an early instance of that in Sidney Lumet. And I don't know if that comes up often, but it definitely is repeated at some point in time. Um, a couple of years later, you later, a couple of years, a couple of years later, several days later, uh, Sidney Lumet made another movie with Henry Fonda, Walter Matthau, and I think Brent has seen it, a 1964 movie called Failsafe. Yeah, I think this is now. I haven't looked this up any time recently, but I think this was a made-for-TV movie. It is about basically the the dangers of fail-safes in nuclear war hmm. scenarios, and it is it is about um, the U.S. sending a pilot. The U.S. thinks it's under attack from, I assume, Russia, and they give their pilot the go-ahead to go attack Russia. And then they find out after they have basically given him the failsafe. I think that's the use of failsafe code. Yeah, I, it's been a yeah. long time. I read the I read the book when I was like thirteen years old, and then saw the movie right after. Um, so it's been a long time for me. But um, they uh, it's after they give him the failsafe code to, and then they find out that there is no attack from Russia, that there was a a mistake somewhere along the line, and then. Uh, the pilot then is flying to Moscow to drop a bomb, and he has already received word to not turn back. And so it's a, it's about that that situation playing out. And so it's a political thriller, um, which I actually don't remember how the movie ends. I remember how the book ends. The book ends very, like, ominously. Like, it's just... Like books tend to do. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it goes poorly. Right. <laughs> they drop the bomb. They, just, they decimate Moscow, and... Uh, think that it's people in Australia wind up uh, having to re, re, repopulate the world. Um, so you're, you're right about everything except uh, the made-for-TV version of it was in 2000 starring George Clooney. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so this was a theatrical release this that I saw. This was a theatrical release, but it was huh. re-released as a, they call it a televised play. Okay. Starring uh, George Clooney. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I was clearly conflating those. Yeah. yeah, but it's same same story. Same. I, I haven't seen the Clooney version. I've seen the the yeah. Lumet version. I'm gonna keep moving on. Stop me if I skip something anybody wants to go to. Go for it. Um, so the we'll we'll skip a lot of the 50s and 70s just because the three of us haven't seen a lot of that. Yeah. Um, they get to 73 with Serpico. Uh, 74 he did what is considered the best version, theatrically released version of Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, Albert Finney. Plays uh, Dracul Perot. Uh, the rest of the cast, though, is stacked. Lauren Bacall, Sean Connery, Ingrid Bergman, Anthony Perkins. Yeah. That would, cast. that would be fun sometime to watch both of those and then like uh, debate the cast. Because both those casts are really good. The, the new one. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the modern cast is ridiculous, too. Yeah, um, it's fun. 1975 becomes uh, or another movie that is, is revered a lot uh, before he gets kind of crazy, but uh, he does a Dog Day Afternoon, where he reunites with Al Pacino uh, and uh, John Gazelle, who is the perfect Oscar record. Yeah, that's, have you, have, have y'all seen Dog Day? 
Yes. You've seen? Have you seen Die Day? Yeah, but not confidently. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same boat. Like it's been a long time since I've seen Dog Dog Day, but I remember it pretty well. And it's a uh, it's a very progressive. I mean, it's a very interesting story, which is uh, the hero of the movie is definitely Pacino, who is robbing a bank to pay for a sex change for his partner, and uh, that's a. But it's framed in a way that makes you definitely empathize with with him, the criminal. Yeah. Right? And it's, uh, I think it's a really interesting movie. Um, I don't know how it fits within Lumet's, like, oeuvre of, like, <laughs> his themes or his, uh, you know... Because, you know, sometimes when we talk about directors... I think it leans toward to a little bit what's going to be my... Like, in thought on Lumet, but we'll get there. Okay. At the yeah. End. But it, Dog Day is, is a great movie, and it's it's definitely thrilling. I mean, it's a bank robbery movie. It's fun, and a lot of if you, if you're not a Lumet, you know, if you don't know a lot about his career and his filmography, uh, you'll real realize like a lot of these movies, you're like, oh, that really that that was him. That was kind of my take on it when I started uh, looking through this. Um, one year later, 1976, he made, uh, in my opinion, one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, and definitely directed one of the best performances ever made, and that's not a minority opinion, um, but Peter Finch and Network. Yeah. Um, and it is full-on Dr. Strangelove satire. Just a weird fucking movie where you're, you're, you're heartbroken with some of the drama and uh, just bent over gut laughing at yeah. some of the outrageous comedy in that movie. Yeah, and if, if you're not familiar with the movie but you've heard it and don't know why you want to watch it, uh, it's about a news anchor who finds out his friend is going to get laid off, so then he announces on live television that he's going to commit suicide on air. Yes. Like, because of the bullshit practices of, like, the news industry. Right. And it's been a long time since I've seen it, but if I'm not mistaken, that turns out to be great for ratings. Yeah. <laughs> Great for ratings, and it's funny, because you, you know, this whole thing turns off. They hire a, uh, kind of an exec to come fix it, uh, played by Faye Dunaway, who's incredible mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, and she comes and, like, we're going to spin this, and we're going to make it this crazy thing. And you realize, like, everybody's pretty much fucking over the populace. And whatever happens, happens, and we'll just, like, take this, we'll spin it how we want to spin it, and it'll be great. And then at the end, I realized, like, oh, not only was, like, everybody lying, but Peter Finch was also lying. Fucker never offed himself. <laughs> like, that totally got dropped from him when he became, and he's kind of psycho in the movie. He's right. senile. Howard Beale, right? That's Howard yeah. Beale is his name. The, the and for those who have never seen Network, uh, I'm mad as hell I'm not going to take this anymore. That top five cinema line of all time. Yeah. That comes from this. And they say it about 200 times in the movie. Yeah. It is a recurring it's a catchphrase. Yeah. yeah. He says it six times in a row. Right. Like, and people like lean out of their Brooklyn apartments and yeah. scream it at the streets. It, it reminds me, and I hate to bring, I, I'm not a big family Eight, guy. Eight, seven, seven, cash now. <laughs> I'm not a big family guy fan, but it reminds me of the episode of the, that really grinds my gears where Peter becomes a recurring <laughs> star of. on the news. But, uh, it's 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 great. Has anybody ever heard or seen the movie called SFW starring um Oh my god. SFW? Yeah. Safe for work? Yeah, I was about to say that's a label I don't normally worry about. <laughs> In the movie it stands for so fucking what? Uh 
Stephen Dorff. The 1994 movie. Stephen Dorff and Reese Witherspoon. He kind of plays Howard Beale. Mm. Like, it wouldn't shock me if they were... Uh, it's got 12% of Rotten Tomatoes. Um, wouldn't shock me if there was kind of a spin off of that. But it's pretty much like a kid who goes on like some talk show. He's part of a school shooting. And he starts screaming like, SFW, so fucking what? Like, move on from this shit, move on to the next thing. And starts a movement. Gets assassinated, much like Howard Beale. Yeah. Um, mm. But... Uh, Network's a, a top ten movie, and I don't think that's like super crazy. No, no. In fact, uh, you know, sitting here talking about Lamette, I, I, I could see us revisiting some of these movies down the line with the podcast because yeah. it's just it's a lot of these are really impressive. I would love to revisit Network. I've never, I mean, it's been a long time. Yeah. What's next? Uh, I'm gonna just skip over the film adaptation of Equus, which is bizarre. You, uh, because go you go to an even more bizarre thing. Wait, because you don't get to see Daniel Radcliffe's penis? Yeah. Not in 1977. <laughs> Who wants that? But, uh, no, then he moves on to direct a film starring Lena Horne, Richard Pryor, Babel King, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross. He directed The Wiz, which is fucking, like, otherworldly that he would attack this. I, I've seen The Wiz. I love The Wiz. The music's great. But he has a five-movie run that goes Serpico, a movie I haven't heard of, Love and Molly, then Murder on the Orient Express, Dog the Afternoon Network, and then his next like huge movie is The Wiz. Yeah. Like, that is such a left turn. It's, it's bizarre. I'm trying to connect it in some way, and I don't know that I can. Money? Like, I hate to do that <laughs> to anybody, but like I bet he got prayed to... That movie obviously had like funding. You got Diana Ross and Michael Jackson in 1978. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe he was just... A, I mean, that's a, that could easily be just like a, an old passion project. Like, like you just grew up... Maybe he just grew up a fan of Wizard of Oz. Maybe. And jumped at the chance. I don't know. That's a, that's a bizarre... It's, it, it's a bizarre film to find in this filmography. Yeah. It is. Skip, though, four or five years in the future, uh, you get Jack Warden and a couple of Oscar nominees, Charlotte Rampling and Paul Newman, and a, a, a really good law movie, uh, The Verdict. Yeah, it's uh, Paul Newman plays an attorney in a medical malpractice suit in a case that's like a David and Goliath story where he's, you know, it's a it's an aggrieved woman who's, uh, who's, Family member has died in this Catholic hospital, so it's also kind of spotlight angled, where it's going up, going up, and he's Paul Newman's character is told multiple times that he's going up against the church when he's suing the church. Um, but kind of like a, I, I really don't know the the, the cultural uh, environment at the time, but you know, a a Renaissance time period for a medical malpractice suit. Um, you know, taking taking the doctors to task over a negligent act which caused the death of this person, um, but you know, like Serpico, like you know, Network, it is both hyper realistic but also like dramatic and satiristic um, in a really effective way. It's <clears throat> it's a movie that I watched hungover once and that has stuck with me uh, to the point where when I was rewatching Serpico, I thought that a scene from the verdict was in Serpico. 
Um, in the beginning, nice. in the beginning of Serpico, when you see all the cops driving into the ambulance bay, all like the, uh, you know, you get in the beginning of Serpico the the praise that he never gets, where all the cops show up to help like be there to be the vanguard for him, right? While he's like in surgery, um, <clears throat> I thought that that's where someone is gunned down, but if that's in uh, giving away a big plot element of the verdict. Where Paul Newman basically sees or is, is has his medical expert killed um, or die um, like right outside the hospital, um, but it is a it is a really good movie. It is that that gritty realism I think that Lumet does well. A question for for both of you because you're really into politics and the law, but mainly Chris because you're into it a little more. Is how realistic is the verdict on the law side of things? Uh, in your opinion, it, to me, it's realistic in the extent that um, it is. The verdict is all about finding an expert, uh, finding an expert witness, somebody who is willing to, uh, for a really kind of like nickel and dime attorney, who is willing to testify that what this giant institutional power did was outside of standard medical practice. So it's so, in that sense, it is. Fairly realistic, I think, for the time. Um, you know, nowadays you've got people who will be jaded and say that anyone will say anything for any amount of money. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you're if you're like an equivalent like defense attorney and you want to bring an expert in on cell phone triangulation, like you you can't spend the money to get an expert to say what you want. So you need the facts on your side. So, in this case, Paul Newman has the facts on his side, but his difficulty is getting an expert who is willing to say that when he's up against the Catholic Church and this monolith that is, you know, the hospital and the institution. Um, So, it's fairly good there. I mean, any movie with the kind of legal grandstanding that Newman does in this movie is unrealistic. Um, You know, the idea of surprise witnesses doesn't actually exist, but... But for for in the aspect of I think the important plot point of finding an expert and protecting them without having to pay them a bunch of money, um, it was really important because he finds a kindergarten teacher who like used to work in this hospital and is willing to be his 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 like star witness as the expert. Like that's the big turning point because she thinks that there's like injustice being done. Um, so I think I think that's 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 pretty close. Nice. Moving on through the 80s, um, it is obvious if you look at these movies, even if you haven't heard of them or seen them, that he had clout. He was carrying weight here. Yeah. Um, the Morning After, Jane Fonda, Jeff Bridges, Raul Julia, huge names in 86. Uh, Running on Empty, River Phoenix and Judd Hirsch. Uh, Family Business had a stellar trio in that cast. Sean Connery, Dustin Hoffman. Uh, Matthew Broderick, young Matthew Broderick there, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in the 90s, he kind of felt like he went into kind of a, uh, like a L.A. Confidential, and then to, to counter it with a bad movie, that was the same kind of feel, Bonfire of the Vanities, this like dirty kind of crime underworld that was so popular for so long in the 90s, uh-huh. um, and it just never really hit for what Lumet was doing. None yeah. of the movies got reviewed really well. Um... The next one I know of that one of us has seen is uh, this week I watched Trip Search. I really don't want to talk too much about it, but the story behind the movie was ridiculous to me. It was made for HBO, made for TV, uh, filmed and edited by Lumet and his editor to a two and a half hour movie. 
Um, HBO pretty much wouldn't air it unless it got shrunk down to 56 minutes. So it got shrunk down to 56 so minutes. HBO hour, yeah. Um, the movie stars Maggie Gyllenhaal and Glenn Close and two other people, one of which you might recognize. But it's essentially Maggie Gyllenhaal gets arrested in China um, by a federal officer equivalent in, in China. Glenn Close arrests a Arab in New York. This film was made in 2004. And uh, you see them being interrogated wrongfully on both sides. Uh, one Arab being interrogated by an American and an American being interrogated by a Chinese soldier, it looked like. And uh, the dialogue in both stories is exactly the same. Like, word for word. Weird. Yeah. And is obviously, as you could probably pick up on, filmed in a way to make you, like, see that what we're doing is also bad. Uh-huh. Yeah. You feel bad for Maggie Gyllenhaal. You feel bad for the guy being interviewed by Green Close. Um, and they're both great in the movie. But it gets, I don't know what the fuck they cut out that HBO wouldn't show. HBO also showed it one time and never showed it again. They refused to ever hear the movie again. Um, it was a very violent strip search of Maggie Gyllenhaal and the Arab guy. And, like, fist in cavities violent. Like, mm. very hard to watch. Uh, like, full frontal and back nudity for Maggie Gyllenhaal. And not like him, obviously. Nowhere near a sexy way. Yeah, um, yeah. Sorry. The movie is, it is a rough watch for 56 minutes. I That's remember, all it is. It's those two scenes. I remember you told me that it was available on streaming, and I was at work when you told me that. And you were like, hey, there's this movie. You can watch it. And then, like, ten minutes <laughs> uh-huh. later, you said, Strip Search is not just the name of the movie. They actually do it. <laughs> Don't watch it at work. It's quick. And then when it, it, it ends with it, too. So, like, yeah. it's there for a long time. Um, you do get a great, after the, the violence of the Strip Search, you get a great response from Maggie Gyllenhaal. In a where she just kind of destroys an interrogation room. Yeah. Um, but it's just none of it's like empowering. She's mm. nude. She's essentially been, not essentially, she's been raped. Yeah. And it's just, it is a rough watch. And uh, it fits into the theme, if he has one, of that. I keep coming back to that, like, just disrespect for humanity. Yeah. And people just not giving a shit about everybody else. Especially those in authority. Yeah. Yeah. I have seen Find Me Guilty. It is also based on a true story, but I have no confidence talking about that movie at all. Yeah. It's about a like a guy who's not gonna cave on the mob and he decides to defend himself. Yeah, it's it's I, I pretty I, much I, made a mockery of a not a bad way, but No, I, I know loosely that it's about uh it's one mobster who thinks it's bullshit that Rico charges that the crimes of everyone get charged against all people and he's representing himself because the mob lawyer is not willing to make him a special exception to defend him individually so he went fuck that i'm not going to because because that's the way it works is if in a conspiracy all crimes of every individual can be charged against all individuals in the conspiracy you just have to prove the conspiracy First, and then you have to prove that these crimes happened as mm-hmm. a result of the conspiracy. So he stands up for himself and goes, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to re- represent myself. And 
kind of fight against the growing trend of, I mean, this is part of like the cleaning up New York bullshit that was happening in the, you know, mid nineties that like, I'm not going to fall for somebody else who's some soldier for the Italian mob. If I'm just like a bookkeeper, you know, yeah, I was involved in the mob, but I'm not the guy who pulled the trigger. Right. Um, so it's an interesting story, and it's also Vin Diesel doing. I was going to say, a great we talk job. about Lumet being a, an actor's director. The movie didn't get loved that much, but Vin Diesel was pretty heavily praised. Yeah, for his performance, he put on like he was way out of character. Put on like seventy pounds for the role of like Chubb. Yeah, too. like he's he's fatty. Yeah. Um, but then that was that was the second to last film, the last one we've already talked about it a little bit. I don't know if Chris has anything else to add. I know he loves the movie, but. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead was the last one. And it's uh, multiple Oscar nominees. Four of them, at yeah. least. Albert Finney, coming uh, back to Lumet, I guess. He'd been in Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, Marissa Tomei, Phil Seymour Hoffman, and Ethan Hawke. Yeah. Um, but we talked a lot about that. Just a, just a great little crime story. Michael Shannon, the yeah. Oscar nominee. Oh, yeah. That's right. Five. So my, my take on Lumet after looking at the filmography and watching what I could in a week, um, I'm going to compare him a lot to like a Steven Soderbergh type director in that he just finds a project he wants to do and he goes and fucking does it. And once he like had that clout that I talked about that he kind of had garnered by the early 70s, mid-70s at the latest, he's just going to go do it. And that's fun if you're a good director. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really helps that he made 12 Angry Men with his first movie because, like, that will buy you just an endless the line. The connections he made. Yeah, like, like, if that cast liked him at all. Every actor, every thespian in Hollywood for 50 years wanted to work with Sidney Lumet just because yeah. of 12 Angry Men. Yeah. Like, you would sign on without really looking at it. Like, and I bet a lot of Michael actors... Michael Shannon did. We talked about it earlier, yeah. Signed on without knowing what the movie was. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it would be bad. And sometimes he wasn't like one of those. He's not one of those directors who just everything he made is a masterpiece. Right. But he's one that like you were, you know, it could be a great film. Yeah, and so that's, everybody, that's, I feel like that's that what you get with kind of that, that Soderbergh type. I love that. I was talking to Brent. I forget who I brought up originally as somebody to compare to Lumet, but you brought up Soderbergh. And that well, was a better yeah, comparison. Well, Soderbergh just strikes Only because, me. like, you do, like, these Murder on the Orient Express movies, like, compared to Ocean's Eleven. Great movie. Fun movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Soderbergh also does, like... I mean, the last two movies Steven Soderbergh directed were Logan Lucky and Unsane. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I love it. Great cast, wild ideas. And yeah. Then, and, yeah. Then he, and then Soderbergh is also He'll has, miss. like... He also has, like, good movies that don't really get noticed sometimes. And then... Big movies that kind of suck? Yeah. And so, I can see that. Did you do Men in Black? No. Who's that? Barry Sonnenfeld. That's right. But, uh... But yeah, that's a... I don't know. That, I threw that out just as a... As, as an example of a director has any... Like... Oh, I hate to say uneven. Uneven sounds like they're consistently uneven. No, but... but definitely assailable, but... A, a legacy career. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm I'm thinking about you know the things that I've read about him, and I'm I'm I always come back to actors director, and I go through like the top one or two build person, 
And these are all, you don't have to be a movie fan to know these names. These are, to bring back a term that I used too often previously, these are like names in the zeitgeist. Like, it's not just... It's college industry. Yeah. <laughs> we're trying, David. <laughs> we don't know how to use that term yet, but we're what, trying. I don't know what it means. <laughs> you know, he, he's, not, he's not casting in the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's not casting the ugly first. It's always, like, the, the top build is always an earned spot. Like, in the first... In the movies we don't talk about, it's still... Sophia Loren, Henry Fonda, Catherine Hepburn, Rod Steiger, Sean Connery, Candace Bergen, James Mason. Like, fuck. Like, these are huge names. Yeah. Huge names. This is like them in the early 90s when they were like... No, that was was in the 60s. Well, I mean... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. And then, like, if you jump into, like, his movies from the late 80s and 90s, it's like Timothy Hutton, Anne Bancroft, Richard Gere, Jane Fonda, River Phoenix... Timothy Hutton, Melanie Griffith, Don Johnson. Don Johnson, fuck, Miami Vice, fine. But yeah. he was a commodity. Right. Like, everybody wanted to work with Sidney Lumet. Yeah. yeah. That's what that tells us, is that, yeah. It, he was definitely, he had that clout. Um, and I think the reason is because you go back to the thing, the one common bond with all his movies, and I didn't mention this for The Fugitive Kind, but the best thing in The Fugitive Kind is the performances. Marlon Brando. And uh, I forget the name of the Italian woman in the movie, but she's really good in it as well. And uh, Twelve Angry Men has great performances. And Anna Magnani. Yeah, and yeah. yes, Magnani. She's fantastic. Serpico, Al Pacino's performance stands, you know, first and foremost in that movie. And I think Sidney Lumet was the kind of director who could get the most out of his actors, mm-hmm. and he would he could get you a nomination here and there. But at the very least, he could he could bring out the best. In his performers, he 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 will let you play. Yeah, if it's mm-hmm. he, yeah, like the scene, like it's he's a almost like a, a playwright director in that he will set the stage and produce the film, but in the scene you can you can you can do what you need to do. And it's it's why like I I go back to Pacino in the precinct breaking the chair, throwing the guy up, ripping his pants. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just, that's such a, I mean, that is that is a microcosm theater for Al Pacino to just, like, flourish. Yeah. So if you're Henry Fonda or you're Bancroft or you're Connery, like, you want to work with this guy who, maybe your movie's not the best, but it'll be one of the performances you look back on and go, that is a signature moment in my career. Yeah, in all his movies, that's maybe the most common bond is that you... All his movies have you fo- have you as the viewer focus on the actors and the acting over everything else in the picture. That that they put he puts the performances center stage, front and center, and I can see that's like that's why actors wanted to act for him. I think. Um, I've got a question. Yeah, this is the second time in ninety or so episodes of the podcast. Where we focus on a director. Um, we did it once more with Jonathan Demme right after he passed away. Yeah. Um, and I asked a question that night of if we had a director's hall of fame, would you put Jonathan Demme in? And the answer was yes. Yeah. It was like a hesitant, but probably yes. The next question was, what if you cut out, uh, what if you remove Silence of the Lambs from his resume? Is he in the hall of fame? And the answer was unequivocally no. 
for yeah. Jimmy. That night it was. Yeah. Right. Um, so I know the answer is if we have a director's hall of fame, do we put Cindy Lumet in? The answer is a resounding yes, I yes. believe. How many movies do you have to cut out before he becomes a no? Three, four? A lot. I, you gotta cut Twelve Angry Men and Network. And then you're still left with Dog Day Afternoon. And Serpico. And Serpico. Maybe you cut out three. If Serpico's his best movie, maybe at that point there's an argument. He's still got a case, though. Yeah. He's still got a case. I don't know. I do I do think, like, after talking to y'all and watching this list, that, like, it was weird how 12 Angry Men kind of launched like, everything for him. Exponentially. Henry Fonda was like, I mean... It's hard for me to grasp how big of a superstar he was in 1957. Yeah, sorry. But Henry Fonda was huge then. And if you get three of the superstars in that movie to, like, sign off on him, like, this guy, you want this guy directing your movie. Yeah. That's that's worth more than anything. It would be like if, if a director's debut was Magnificent Seven. Like yeah, I'm trying to compare it to something today. Like it'd be as like DiCaprio starting somebody's debut, along with like Matt Damon and name them. I mean, not Johnny Depp anymore, but I can't think who else. But like name the five best actors you can think of. Like if three of them started somebody's movie, their directorial debut, and then after that they were like, this guy is the guy you want directed everything. Yeah. Like, that I mean, guy gets weird. He gets to do whatever he wants to do. I mean, I, for the rest I, of his life. I, I think a weird comparison is Judd Apatow with Freaks and Geeks. I know that's not his first, but it's his biggest. It's not horrible. But, like, I get it. James Franco, Linda Cardellini, Seth Rogen, Martin Starr, uh, you know, Sam Levine. Like, these aren't huge names, but, like, Seth Rogen and James Franco, like, Linda Cardellini's in, a, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, it's. It's pretty ridiculous. And then after that, and after Undeclared, everything Judd Apatow touches is gold. Whether it's good doesn't matter. It's making multi-millions. So, um, Hollywood Report has roundtable interviews. Comedy Writers Roundtable featured Seth Rogen. And Seth Rogen described Judd Apatow as a actress director. And when asked why, it was because when Seth Rogen and James Franco and Jason Siegel who have all written Oscar-nominated blockbuster movies, when they were 17, they told him together, the trio, like, we want to write. And Judd Apatow was like, be at my house at 7 in the morning, I'll tell you everything I know. Like, that that's huge. That, like that. that just, like, I'll teach you how to write good comedy. And now, like, Franco's nominated for Oscars, and Rogan and Siegel rewrote the fucking Muppets and killed it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like... That that just that's the kind of story that I love with Hollywood. Like I know it's cheesy and it's bullshit and like they're us, but like I love that shit. Yeah, I love a good mentor. <laughs> I, I also love that I stumbled in that comparison. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. Like, well, no, that you remember someone calling him an actor director. Oh right, yeah. That's I like, mean, it was Rogan, essentially like his son. But yeah, like I love that. It makes sense. It's great. Lumet. Uh, Definitely would call him underrated, because... Yes, I think I think people know his movies much more than they know him. Yes. And I think that's because his style is so uh, screen-forward and less 
nuance and subtlety. There's less to study about a guy like Sidney Lumet. Yes. Um, He's not necessarily a technique or value-added director. He's more substance than style, I think, yeah. in, in his not, Yeah, He is the opposite end of the spectrum from, like, a... Quentin Tarantino. Yes. You, yeah. wouldn't, you wouldn't teach Lumet to a group of would-be filmmakers because they would teach you how to not make movies. Because, yeah. Because like, as, as a young filmmaker, you couldn't get the talent that Lumet could get. And without knowing that, like, you feel like you know how to use that talent when you get it. Yeah. Which is a talent in itself. Yeah. But like you let out, you let Al Pacino do whatever he wants to do, go coil in the corner, you know. It goes back to the Nicholas Cage thing. Like you ask, you you say that, like you're like, I want manic, and then you get Nicholas Cage crazy, and you're like, not what I wanted, but yeah, perfect, yeah. And like, there's, there's <laughs> talent, there's talent in knowing to realize that though. There yeah. is. I was, I was gonna say. I realize that because we've had a few drinks to that, that we could probably we would we would sit here and talk about this for another forty minutes if yeah. we could. Um, Might say the same thing over and over again, but yeah. But yeah, I think that was a that was a, an interesting and enjoyable. Thank, thanks, thanks for that. Uh, I, it was a black hole for me. Yeah, it's it's it, it it was. I looked at the list and I went. I don't want to do a talk of fame, but I want to do a director's look. And then I saw Serpico streaming and went, this is great. Yeah. I know these are movies that people have seen. And I know that we can talk about what we've seen about them. Um, but if you, if, if you listening haven't seen any of the movies that we've individually mentioned that we've seen, I don't think that other than Strip Search or the... Orpheus one, the fugitive scale, <laughs> the fugitive kind, the fugitive kind. Yeah, Other than that. those two, like if you haven't seen Network or Dog Day Afternoon or Serpico or definitely check them out. Or actually, Murder on the Orient Express. I'm gonna throw this out. If you've seen any that we did not talk about and you want to tell us about them and how maybe they fit into the conversation, I'll rent that shit right now. Reach out to us. Yeah, on, on the, I'll definitely give it a look. In, in one of the ways that we talk about it at the end of the podcast, reach reach out to us. That would be. I would love to hear from people who have seen some. We'd all watch it in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, even if you're just telling us not to watch it for whatever reason. Well, I will not watch it in a heartbeat. I would also <laughs> love to know why somebody thinks that one of the movies by this guy is unwatchable. Sure. Yeah. Like, I can see it. Like, it's possible. But, yeah. Yeah. So, Chris said he didn't want to do a talk of fame, and that's why he did this. I wanted to do a talk of fame this week on my homework assignment. Um, and I picked a movie, and it was ineligible. So I picked another movie, and it was also ineligible. <laughs> so I quit. My category category my topic by the way all you have to do to find an eligible movie for talk of fame is just something that was released before april 22nd 2013 yep couldn't do it there are a lot of movies that were released after that <laughs> there's more before <laughs> i haven't checked i haven't checked so we're doing another topic next week um the topic is going to be i don't want to i don't want to limit it to rated r because that feels shitty but i'm doing animated movies that are unequivocally made for adults Nice. Cool not world. The homework is an Andy Kaufman film called Anomalisa. Oh, streaming on Amazon is, Prime. That is not an Andy Kaufman movie. Not Andy Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman. Kaufman. <laughs> yes. We're like six large cocktails I was, in. I was really anticipating an animated movie from Andy Kaufman. Uh, a new one. A, a new, new one. one. Yeah. <laughs> one that was five years. One that was ineligible for the talk of fame. Anomalisa is streaming on Netflix. It's uh 
marionettes, I want to say. Yeah, it's this it, is the weirdest fucking movie. It, I, love it? It. I love it. Okay, I don't know if you've seen it or not. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. I have okay. not seen it. It's, I saw it in the theater, and there was a very odd theater watch. It was showing in one theater in Atlanta. I went with Al and Cassandra. We sat there. The movie ended. Everybody sat there. The credits were done. The lights came on, and everybody's still just like, huh? Like, <laughs> what the fuck just happened? I've seen this super recently. Well, not super recently, but I've seen, I, I watched it like maybe a year ago. It's in the past year, but I will probably watch it again. If I remember correctly, it's a short movie. It's an hour and a half. Exactly yeah. on the dot with credits. one thirty. I totally recommend this movie. It's, I'm, yeah, this is going to be fun to talk about. I'm excited. I'm excited. What's the topic going to be? Adult-made animated oh, movies. Oh, right, right, right. Animated movies. You were busy Clearly yelling, made. cool world. Cool world! <laughs> <laughs> Clearly made for adults. They don't have to be rated R, but... So you're not talking about Finding Nemo, which has, like, bits for adults. No, right? yeah, it's I mean, horrible. like, like, Team America is legit. South Park is fun. Animated films, you wouldn't, you don't show kids. You cannot right. show a kid. Okay. And I'm, and I'm at least it definitely fits. Yeah. <laughs> Do not show a kid this movie. <laughs> don't sit down and watch this one with the family. Yeah. Cool, I'm excited. That was an Oscar blind spot that year. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun movie. And we'll have fun talking about it next week. Yeah. In the meantime, this has been Talking Talks, the podcast of MediaByUs.com. You can find us on Facebook at Movies By Us, TV By Us, Games By Us. You can email us at TheMediaByUs at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TheMediaByUs. You can rate our podcast. We prefer that. Mm-hmm. If you're going to contact us, write a comment. Respond to the weird question we asked you about Sydney Lumet movies on the comments in your rating for our podcast. Uh, we have intro music that is provided by the always wonderful Will Walkers. Will Walkers! And we have outro music, and there's no better way to end than... Boo Reefa! Boo Reefa! Uh, thanks for joining us for this talk. I don't think I've forgotten anything. I don't know why we keep saying that we are forgetting things in the outro, because this is the 91st episode. 91. That's too many. Anyway. Yeah. Fuck! Thanks, guys. Kicking rocks down old dusty roads. Small town, slow pokes, long time ago. Kicking out records of all the things that I know. All 